Deep in the imagination, there's a crossroads, a space where curiosity and inspiration intersect and give birth to ideas. A space where music, science fiction, comic books, and pop culture inform the mind of what is and what could be. This is Jeff Boucher's Mind Space. In each episode, legendary journalist Jeff Boucher welcomes the biggest names in genre entertainment for an expansive dive into all things pop culture. Journey with Jeff as he explores the latest news and recommendations of the hottest releases across entertainment with his most trusted confidants. You are now entering deep space. Heavy Metal presents Jeff Boucher's Mind Space. Hi, uh, welcome to Mindspace. This is Jeff Boucher, and I'm here with Maya St. Clair and uh, with our guest, uh, Eddie Mueller. He's not only an author, he's an esteemed author, uh, especially right now. Is that right, Maya? He's got... Uh... Yeah, his ultimate guide to film noir, it's called Dark City. He, it's just been reissued, and it's currently number one in Amazon on movie guides, and it's been getting great reviews. There's lots of new material and it's a super gorgeous book with lots of full color photos. So uh, Cinephile should definitely check it out. It's it's really gorgeous. Yeah, it is a nice looking book. And, uh, you know, uh, noir is like such a great, wonderful aesthetic. It's one of my favorite parts of pop culture. So uh, it's really great to have Eddie on the show. So we'll we'll get right into it. So here's Eddie Mueller and all things noir. You know, film noir is such a great uh, sector of not just cinema, but well, uh, of cinema. And then noir has become such a, a fascinating sort of uh, aesthetic for uh, pop culture in general. I mean, it seems to go far and wide. Um, what do you think it is that appeals to us so much about film noir? Is it the, the kind of the attitude of it or the aesthetic? Well, I, I think it's both of those things, the attitude and the aesthetic, but um, I think it's, I don't know, I should, I should have a simple answer for this by now, right? I've been doing this long enough, but um, I've been doing it so long that I've seen it kind of become a generational thing. So it's, I would say it's even more popular now than when I started writing about it, you know, 22, 23 years ago. Uh, and that, I think, has to do with the rise of uh, like vintage culture and cocktail culture and all that, that a younger, a, definitely a younger generation uh, is, is it, it appeals to this younger generation. Now, the reason for that, I think it's because there was a lot more style in the culture back in mid 20th century America. It's like that's sort of when America peaked in terms of that's when the cars were really great and the architecture was really great and it was the birth of the cool and the music was really great and um you know and and i think that has a lot to do with it like wanting to preserve that because i've certainly seen that dovetail with my desire to preserve and restore the films i sense that my audience is trying to restore and preserve the culture in which those films were made so yeah. it's a it's a nice little marriage <laughs> that sure. uh, that that we've managed to accomplish here. Yeah. Uh, also, I think that in terms of the movies, uh, the noir films of that era, I, I like to say that's sort of where America started to lose its innocence. Yeah. And so I think today people look back on that as uh, well. We can enjoy these movies because they're kind of cynical. And so we're not we're not being nostalgic, and oh. and it's not corny, you know. It's like man, people had to toughen up, you know. They, it was pretty hardcore back oh, yeah. then, and and I think that that's that's part of its appeal as well. Oh, you know, that's a really interesting point. I think I think you're right. I think that because uh, I hadn't really thought of it that way, but because it's uh, it's got that kind of cynical edge, uh, it's uh, it's immune from seeming Pollyanna uh, as the years go by because some stuff that's really earnest uh just now comes across to a, especially younger generations is just kind of uh hokey uh you know with a capital h right right and also you know when there, there are films of that era that were message pictures and a movies 
um, sometimes seem a little ham-handed, yeah. if you will. And because these were genre pictures where they're they're supposed to be just entertaining stories about, you know, cops and robbers and stuff like that. But there was this subtext that became the text uh, when it was film noir. I mean, taken as a whole, these films were presenting an entirely different view of the culture, you know, in American society. And, and that was where the message ended up being more so than just this single movie is saying this, it was like taken as a whole, uh, because I always refer to film noir as a as an organic artistic movement. Mm -hmm. It wasn't. It w certainly wasn't like the the movie studios were saying, uh, "We need to make more of these films." I mean, it it lasted just for a short while, and it's because the storytellers themselves wanted to do it. Mm -hmm. And you know, once Double Indemnity made money then it was like, well, okay, I guess the people want to see this. But it only lasted for a short while. And, yeah. and it's fascinating to know that at a certain point in the late 1940s, uh, exhibitors kind of had a backlash against the movement. You know, yeah. they said enough, enough already. You know, we don't want to see so much corruption and, and misery in the big urban centers and all this stuff. Yeah. So, so that was pretty fascinating. Like, you know, make it go away. And that's when you got, as we went into the 50s and, and Technicolor came in and all that, that's when you saw the movies try to really escape, right? Mm -hmm. And sword and sandal movies and big westerns and all that kind of stuff. And the noir, interestingly enough, the noir didn't really disappear. It moved to television. Right. So, like so it was, and... oh yeah, Alfred Hitchcock Presents and the GE Playhouse and all this kind of stuff and the anthology series. They were dark. And then, you know, you got the Twilight Zone, which is kind of a noirish yeah. thing itself. And, and so that was kind of interesting that they said, we don't want to see these kind of things in the movie theaters. So they ended up coming right into your home. Yeah, that is. Uh, it's interesting. I saw a show. I had never even heard of it. I'm embarrassed to say, but the Barbara Stanwyck show, I caught some episodes of that and just the, the noir kind of, uh, uh, you know, worldview not even, I mean, beyond the aesthetic, just the, you know, the, the, the plots and stuff like that. It, Absolutely. it really was. Absolutely. Yeah, it really because, was. because as um, in the fifties, as it became less common to have a, a double bill mm -hmm. in the theaters, the people who were really experts at making B movies, like 63 minute tight movies on a short schedule well, guess what? They all went to television because that was the way television was made. Mm -hmm. So those those writers, directors, cameramen who could light stuff like super fast, and a lot of the a lot of the actors that we knew who were synonymous with film noir ended up on TV. And what was really comical was uh, a lot of the heavies from noir, like Raymond Burr and William Tallman yeah. and William Conrad. They all had these huge careers on television as the stars. Yeah. They were no longer the, the supporting players being the menacing characters. They were now the stars of their own TV shows. So that it was a it's a very interesting transition in the 50s. Yeah, it really is. And, and um, it's intriguing for me to look back to at how much Westerns and and uh, along with noir. I mean, if you look at the those two sectors i mean that's just a huge swath of what television was uh at that time and yes i mean at one point in prime time i mean the, the top 40 shows I, I think there was like 17 westerns 18 westerns at one point which is like pretty extraordinary if you think about it and yes. uh, it makes me think of like the only corollary i can think of for superhero cinema these days is that westerns explosion because i mean now it's you know with the superhero stuff you just wonder at some point when you deconstruct it and have so many subversive versions of it, like the boys and things like that, you know, how it can, uh, if it can keep going, if it can hold the center as far as like beams, you know, authentic storytelling. Right. You know. I mean, that's, that's a really interesting analogy. And, but when you ask that question, I, this is not an answer, but it's a supposition that, you know, you're not seeing any Westerns today That's right. on television or being made in the movies. So, I mean, will the same thing happen to superhero movies that they'll yeah. just like vanish and we'll say, what was that all about? Yeah. You know, we, we because in some, 
in some ways you could argue that you know the 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 underlying themes of westerns and superhero movies are kind of the same right absolutely absolutely and 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 also you would think at some point that because of the way people are dressed and the way that they get to work it's going to be limiting to the types of stories you can do like if it doesn't have a horse or a cape or doesn't fly or have a shoot six shooter you know it's it's kind of like the beach boys to me like it, you know I, the beatles got you know a certain percentage of acclaim and i think the beach boys got a lesser percentage and part of that is because they're i think the themes like were kind of limited after a while mm -hmm. um and and it almost feels like that to me although anytime you you say that you can you'll see a, a, a an artist come along and and take a previously unconsidered corner of that territory and turn it into something really special you right know, like a, a right. McCabe and mrs miller or a, or uh you know uh unforgiven you know with the westerns oh uh, sure you, absolutely yeah, absolutely because yeah because then the idea becomes well we loved all the trappings of it but now we're going to subvert it and do something yeah different it's interesting because i just uh i just came back from atlanta and recorded a, a series of neo-noir shows for tcm oh, wow. that ben ben mankowitz and i are going to co-host this series of 15 neo-noir films and that be, that was basically the subject of all of our discussions was like is this film paying tribute to the older movies or is it consciously trying to subvert what those films were doing you know for a new generation and it's really interesting to compare you know when you watch now something like body heat yeah it's amazing how close it feels to the original films it mm -hmm. feels much much closer to double indemnity than than a lot of newer movies you'd think like oh you know there's nudity and there's bad language and all this stuff but the feel of the film and and what lawrence kasdan was trying to do uh, he was so honoring those old films that it feels closer to that era than it does to contemporary films. Yeah. And then there That's are other movies where it's clear that they're they're just using the form to turn it over and and just change everything, you know, right. um, like Blade Runner or something like that. <laughs> uh I, well i won't go into it you can see on tcm our discussion about blade runner oh, because we do show that one we do uh -huh. show blade runner and it, and i hadn't seen it for for a number of years and uh i had a very interesting reaction to the film of course what's interesting about watching blade runner today is it's set in 2019 yeah yeah so yeah. it's like the very first thing i thought of was they predicted so much accurately why didn't they see cell phones why yeah. did they not see that cell phones were coming? That's it's right. It's so odd when Harrison Ford goes to a payphone in that movie. That's true. It's like, seriously? That's funny. <laughs> That's a good point. You know, uh, and also the other reaction is, where's my rocket car? Like, come on, like, uh, uh, get me out of this traffic. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, in a way, we're spared. Uh, uh, maybe uh, Ridley chose that on purpose just because uh, I, I, I watched you know, I went back to that TV show Ray Donovan uh, recently and watched a bunch of it. And I just can't believe how much time people are on the phone on screen, like entire sections of that show are just people, you know, <laughs> making calls to each other, like from different cars. And, uh, you know, it's just like, oh, my God, like, when did this become like storytelling? But uh, I think it was just, uh, I think it was my isolation uh, from qu quarantine, probably, probably gave yeah. me that. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that, that's really interesting. Also, with Blade Runner, the question people always ask is, which one did you see? Because there's so many, you know, there's like, <laughs> like fundamentally different with yes, narration. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, uh, about, yeah, I, we're showing the one without the, the voiceover narration. Oh, that's interesting, because I would have thought the other with the narration. Because it like sounds a, like an old noir yeah. film. But but honestly, I think it's better without the narration. I, I, I agree. Oh, I think you guys made a good call. I think that's yeah. a really good call. Um, uh, you know, that's that's interesting. I could talk to you about Blade Runner for all day, but uh, let me uh, ask you this. You mentioned Double Indemnity, Indemnity, which is one of my favorite movies. I remember seeing it uh, when I was young and and I just, I couldn't even describe why I liked it. And I guess that's one of the great things about film noir. It's like, uh, you know it when you see it or you know it when you feel it uh, in, a, in a way. And uh, I just love that uh, film and the performance by, uh, especially Fred McMurray, just because it was such a revelation to me uh, so many people um, 
that come to the movie in recent decades will have seen My Three Sons first. Of course. And, and I, as I did. And that along with Andy Griffith in uh, Facing the Crowd, those were just such jolting um, kind of uh, revelations. But when you watch Double Indemnity now, uh, what is it that kind of cuts through for you uh, or, or maybe comes to you in a different way than it has in the past about that film? Because like so many Wilder films, there's so much you could get into with it. Well, the thing that always strikes me is how cleverly Billy Wilder is challenging the production code with mm -hmm. that movie because the the thing that sets Double Indemnity apart and and why it is the noir film that when people say, oh, if you want to get somebody started on film noir, what should they watch? And I always say Double Indemnity because what was critical about it was that the protagonists are the villains. Mm -hmm. And and that pretty much changed everything. And to see Fred McMurray and Barbara Stanwyck as adulterous lovers plotting murder, right. <laughs> and that the movie shows explicitly these two people discovering, you know, the means, motives, and opportunity to commit murder. That was yeah. something totally new in American cinema. And sure. to cast, you know, at that point, Barbara Stanwyck was the highest paid woman in the United States of America. And she didn't want to make the movie because she said, are you kidding me? I mean, people, people know me as, you know, Stella Dallas and Sugar Puss O'Shea from Ball of Fire, you know. <clears throat> and although she was tough as nails, she was also always a very, very likable person on screen that you always rooted for and she was afraid that playing phyllis dietrichson you know the the public would turn against her yeah and and you know i always loved billy wilder's response to that was oh excuse me i i thought you were an actress <laughs> <laughs> and and that just you know really got under stanwick's skin and was like okay let's do this let's do this thing uh so you know and that's the main thing and like figuring out ways to um make it feel so illicit and so dangerous when you couldn't really show anything yeah. is the genius of that film. And, and it's interesting, Jeff, because that is the scene where they meet in the house yeah. and he comes on to her and it's all dialogue, right? I mean, right. you do get a, a nice look at Stanwick's gams with <laughs> the anklet and everything, but it's all dialogue. Sure. And I show that scene because I, I do a lot of uh, visiting with, I used to do a lot of visiting with high school classes and college yeah. classes and things. And I always show that scene to try to seduce younger people into what's the appeal of these old films. Right. And I show them that scene and, and they love it. Yeah. But it, because it's not like anything they've seen before. Sure. And I say, so what is this scene about? And, and like the gold star goes to the people who say, well, he it's wants foreplay. to her, yes. it's foreplay. It's foreplay. <laughs> you know, it's foreplay. And yeah. it's like, yeah, this is all about sex. I mean, basically this is the way they used to do sex in the movies. And then I explain why, and I talk about the production code and a lot of younger people are like fascinated by the fact that there was a, a policing body yeah. that dictated what could be shown in movies and what couldn't. And, and then they kind of get into it because then they start seeing how encoded yeah. movies are. And then it's like, it's not corny. It's like something you have to decipher because I sure. always tell them, I say, let's face it, you know, your grandparents and your great grandparents, they're just as horny as you are. Sure. You know, even more so I have to say, yeah, and, yeah. but they couldn't just come right out and show it on screen. So this is how they did it. And then, yeah. then the kids are kind of intrigued and they watch the movies a little a little differently, like you know, oh, so this means that. Oh, okay, yeah. I, I get it. You know, yeah, yeah. Sometimes they, they can read a little too much into it, but that's okay because I've got yeah. them hooked. Yeah, exactly. Because they're trying. <laughs> uh, that's that's really interesting. Yeah, you know, Billy Wilder. I mean, you just illustrated perfectly with both half, halves of that story uh, how ingenious Billy Wilder is. Uh, for him to, to uh, say that to Barbara Stanwyck shows how smart he was as well. But is it, 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 if I'm not wrong, I mean, I, I don't think it's an apocryphal story. I mean, he didn't even speak English when he came to the United States, right? Yeah. He didn't, yeah. And, and at, 
And how much later was Double Indemnity? I mean, that's not that many years like ten, later. Like 10 years later. So not like even. he went from, you know, uh, arriving and trying to find out what's going on to being a master of illuminated wordcraft. <laughs> like in, to, to, having, to, to having a total grasp of the American vernacular speech, you know? Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, he's a genius. And I have no hesitation in saying that Billy Wilder is the greatest writer-director in in hollywood history you know yeah uh and that's part of the reason and that always blows my mind is and it's something i tend to i like to point out when i'm doing my introductions on tcm is how many of these people were immigrants from other other countries you know it's like here ukrainian cameraman joe rutenberg you know hungarian john alton uh, Hungarian Michael Curtiz, you know, uh, sure. it, it's it's fascinating how many of these people, English was a second language for them. Yeah. And they were creating the Hollywood that everyone now refers to as the good old days, you know? That's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and like, the lexicon, well, the lexicon of the shared cinema, which exactly which has all those things in it, which is makes it even more fascinating. And you know, that scene that you talk about it, it uh, uh, between Fred McMurray and, and Barbara Stanwyck, it's it's almost like uh, uh, an Eminem song as well, because of the, the language, the rhythm of it, the, the, the velocity of it, uh, the, the clever twists, uh, you know, there's a lot going on there. Uh, and, and, you know, through so many of his films, I mean, some like it hot, I mean, springs to mind as well, like, just the language is, it, it's, you know, it's dizzying uh, yes, and, and yes. uh, giddy, you know, you swoon listening to it. Precise. And like in Some Like It Hot, another example, like the ending of that movie <laughs> for the time it was made, you know, when Joey Lewis. For now. <laughs> nobody, nobody's perfect, you know. Yeah. And it's like, wow, which I believe is on Wilder's headstone. I think that's what he, uh, he was a writer. Sure. Nobody's perfect. <laughs> well on the whole i'd rather be in philadelphia right I'm, yeah uh, yeah yeah uh, <laughs> but the, and amazing. uh also you have to give for double indemnity you sort of have to give props to uh to raymond chandler as well who, who worked on the screenplay with wilder and i you know when i parse it out i i know that a lot of the great language is chandler's and his gift for language was was far greater than james m kane's gift for language his stuff kind of you can't say Kane's words. You can read them and they work on oh. the page, but you can't actually say them. They're just kind of lifeless. Mm-hmm. And and Chandler gave it, it made it sing, you know. But but Wilder had he understood the rhythm mm-hmm. because he knew comedy. And so mm-hmm. he knew how to the rhythms of speech and how to play it so that it really, really worked and became just squirmily entertaining. I don't I don't know that Chandler left to his own devices, he, he knew the beauty of the language and, the, and how wonderfully florid he could make stuff, you know? Yeah. But it, it's wilder that makes it play, you know? Yeah. He knew That's how to direct the, those actors, yeah. Yeah, it's a, quite the cocktail when you put it all together. I mean, yep, exactly. Really good stuff. Exactly. Um, and then, you know, it, it's, it's fascinating over the years to watch uh, as the, the sort of... Uh, all these aesthetic and, and uh, attitude noir got put into other genres, kind of mashups and things like Blade Runner, uh, and, but also well beyond that. Um, and I'm, I'm curious about some of the sci-fi or fantasy ones that you think really kind of uh, um, are, you know, stand the test of time that, that maybe pull on some of the uh, noir stuff. I would, I would think like, if, you know, uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit springs the Well, mind, Who right? Framed Roger Rabbit, if, of course, you know, yeah. which is also kind of interesting because when people talk about that movie, I say, well, next to Chinatown, that's like the great noir film about Los Angeles, right? Yeah, it's <laughs> and right the, And there, the right? death of the red cars and all that stuff. I mean, the, the movie has a lot more uh, substance to it than people realize because it is based on historical fact you know yeah if you put those two together along with la confidential i would think maybe those three you end up getting so much civic history uh for los angeles and and its history of like transportation and water and like you know uh... absolutely absolutely (laughs) so many of the movies that i chose for this neo-noir series on tcm so many of them are set in la 
it um, wasn't my intention when I started out, but it was like, oh, this one's kind of a landmark for this reason. And that, you know, and there's another film from 1981 that I love called Cutter's Way. Oh, I've seen that. That, um, that is also just a wonderful depiction of, it's not LA necessarily, it's, it's set in Santa Barbara. Okay. But it's a perfect depiction of like the rot underneath the beautiful sunny facade okay. of Southern California. And it's sort of a, a eulogy for the, the 70s and the Vietnam era. And it's, John Hurd just gives a spectacular performance. He, oh, he's wow. like, he's, he's a, a Vietnam veteran who's just been obliterated. You know, he's got a, a bad leg and he's lost an eye and he doesn't, he's missing an arm. And he just, he is very, very angry. And then when his friend thinks he's seen a woman, uh, the body of a woman stuffed in a trash can in a back alley in Santa Barbara, then one day he recognizes the guy that he saw at the scene. And it's this big successful industrialist that, mm -hmm. you know, who's like represents the total capitalist establishment that John Hurd detests because, wow. you know, I gave up everything for America and they don't care about me at all. So he's going to try to do everything in his power to prove that this guy is guilty. Wow. And you never know whether he's making it all up or not. Yeah. But it, Which is it's great. It's a very, very profound movie in that regard. And uh, it's terrific. And it looks great. Jordan Cronenweith did the photography, who, as you know, did Blade Runner as well. Yeah. And um, yeah, it's it's fantastic. Well, that's such a great, I'm so excited. I can't wait to see that. I haven't seen that before. And uh, I love uh, getting uh, such a trusted recommendation on such an interesting film. That sounds really and, great. And, uh, and, and his buddy, who, who sees the, the crime, sort of, mm -hmm. Is uh, is played by Jeff Bridges, and so the oh. two the two of them are just terrific together. Oh, that's an interesting era for Jeff Bridges too. Like uh, that would be somewhere near like probably Starman and and uh, yeah yeah that's when that's when he was getting a lot of work, but nobody quite realized how good he was. Yeah, and and then in a few years they would start saying he might be America's greatest actor, you know, and yeah. and uh, and then he kind of grew into that. Uh, which is sort of interesting. It's great to see a lot of these actors that we that you know we grew up with. Sure, it's one because all the old Hollywood actors were done by the time I started watching the movies, right? So I didn't get to see the progression mm -hmm. when they go from like young leading man to aging veteran. You know, right. I just saw I just saw this movie the other day with Kevin Costner and Diane Lane, this uh, thing called uh, Let Him Go. Uh -huh. And it was really great to see both of them older. Yeah. You know, yeah. They're, they're, I mean, Kevin Costner, <laughs> I don't know how old he is now, but he is now so weathered and he has aged and he's like leathery, you know? Yeah. And, and he's terrific. He's fantastic yeah, in this I movie. And, and Diane Lane has always been one of my favorite actresses. I, I don't mean to be given a plug for this movie. I have no connection to it whatsoever. Yeah. But I just I just enjoy being able to see, uh, you know, performers age with me because yeah. I've never had that experience before. You know, like, no, oh, like I point. remember, you know, like like we were showing night moves as part of this neo-noir series. And here's Melanie Griffith when she's 16 years old. Yeah. Right. And, different... and she, she is fully grown now. Yeah. And, uh, and it was amazing to just, or, or a really young Gene Hackman. Yeah. And, yeah. and now he is like the senior statesman of, you know, Hollywood actors. And yeah. And retired. really, I mean, you know, we haven't seen him since Moose. Yeah. Board, you know, yeah. Uh, which is kind of sad. Kind of and it is, it is kind of interesting, isn't it? How these how these people do sort of just say, "That's it, I'm done." Like well, Hackman, Eastwood. Hackman, Eastwood keeps going, but Jack Nicholson is like done, not going to oh, make yeah. another movie, you know. And uh, and Hackman the same way. Uh, I, I guess what's the story with Eastwood? I know he still makes movies, but he's not going to oh, yeah. be in movies, right? You know, he's I think act he, still. He didn't want to act in uh, the last few. Um, in fact, I I. I got to talk to him for uh, Gran Torino and he wanted Hackman to do that role. Mm. Uh, and, uh, and he said, you know, uh, Hackman's retired. And I said, Oh, is, is that like official? And he said, well, you, you didn't tell anybody. That's how I know he means it. 
Like, because he, he mm-hmm. said, when you announce your retirement, that's when you're trying to get people to talk you, talk you back. I he goes, see, you know, yeah. Gene's out, out on a boat and he's, his, uh, he's married to one of the fifth best violin player in the world and she's playing and he's got the, the, the fish on and he's not coming back. <laughs> <laughs> that so, sounds pretty good, man. It does sound pretty good. It does sound pretty good. Um, uh, you know, you mentioned uh, Kevin Costner. And I, it, it, it's absolutely interesting to watch actors that uh, their lives, their, their, their persona and their faces and their performance seems to uh, mature and change over the years and, and still hold new and interesting things in it, you know. Um, I, I saw randomly uh, the remake of DOA the other day um, on TV because uh, I was showing to somebody that hadn't seen it and uh, Dennis Quaid and Meg Ryan, I mean, like that was a, a million years ago and she's, she yeah. seems like such a child uh, in that film, like very young. Uh, that's got to be the classic D, uh, uh, all-time noir setup though the uh, doa the original and the you know to walk into a police station uh, report your own murder and then proceed to kind of tell the tale and not in a hurry in in no hurried fashion apparently either there's always time for a cigarette let me tell you guys (laughs) gather around you know let me let me let me run let me run this idea by you uh, and I don't want to get off on a tangent with this, Please. but I, I can tell that you're a big fan of, of Blade Runner. And mm-hmm. as I was watching the movie again, it occurred to me, you know, if this was Roy Batty's story instead of Deckard's story, mm-hmm. it's DOA. Yeah. It's, you know, it's a replicant who knows he's going to die and he yeah. wants to find out not who killed me, but who made me. Well, it's an extremely good point. Yeah, it, right? it really and, is. And it's like, wow, this <laughs> if they had switched the emphasis in this film yeah. from Harrison Ford to Rutger Hauer, it's even more of a film noir. Yeah. Because as you're saying, you know, that's that setup is like the ultimate noir setup. It's it really I'm dead. Is. I'm dead. I'm still living, but I, I'm on the clock. Yeah. And I got to figure out what happened to me. That's exactly what the basis of Blade Runner is. Yeah, which means that in a way... And if you look at you know what what is Harrison Ford's character, uh, then he in a way he becomes the you know Ed, Edward Edward G. Robinson character from Double Indemnity, like where he's just kind of he's holding the bag until somebody notices you know what's going on. Right, right, yeah. exactly, exactly. Wow. That's a really good point. That's a really good point. Um, is there any other sci-fi uh, noirs that spring to Well, mind? I remember I haven't seen it in a long time, but I remember when I saw the the movie Gattaca. Oh, I thought yeah. this is this is very much a film noir, you know. Yeah, and then, and sense. of course, since I've written a book called Dark City, I am well aware oh. of the fact that Dark City, the the movie, which when my book initially came out in the last century, uh, there was a lot of confusion because Dark City came out, the movie came out at exactly the same time, and you know, uh, there were they were just starting like online purchasing of books and things. And there was a lot of confusion wow. between the novelization of Dark City and my book about film noir, Dark City, The Lost World of Film Noir. So we had to get all that squared away. Nobody, yeah. nobody makes that mistake now, thank goodness. But, uh, but that certainly was very much a film noir inspired science fiction. Film. Yeah, absolutely. And Chris Nolan uh, is a real big fan of that movie. He's expressed that, that that's one of his favorites. Um, yeah, I always, I always thought Rufus Sewell was really good in that. And he, you know, uh, in Man in the High Castle, uh, which, you know, has, uh, you know, a lot of different influences, but some more in it as well. Uh, he popped up and I always thought that he would have done more by now, uh, just because I just enjoy him. Yeah, it's interesting. Screen. It's interesting how some some people kind of slide off the radar and it's nice to see them come back, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, can somebody... I can I chime in as the millennial? Please. Have either of you seen Detective Pikachu? No, no. I have not. I, oh. I know what you're talking. I know what you're talking about. <laughs> but I ha- how many I have times today have I seen it? Is that what you mean? <laughs> today? Yeah. Oh, it's it's a very charming movie, and it's got a lot of noir beats. Um, it has to be a bit brighter just because it, it is aiming for a general audience. But something interesting that the animators have spoken about is how 
well-suited noir lighting is for CGI um, and how well it enables them to, you know, uh, render the forms of the of the Pokemon and and to make them look realistic uh, without them looking. It's a way for them to avoid the kind of over putty like sculpted mm-hmm. kind of artificial CGI look that characterizes a lot of monsters today. Yeah, uh, those unrealistic uh, Pikachu's. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for that term, putty like. Because I, I was trying that, to figure out what it, what is it about this new form of animation? What you know, and it's like they're like putty. That's exactly what it is. Thank yeah, you, yeah. thank you very much. Yeah, Ryan. I think I think Jeff used it first though, and in, in, okay. in some other times though. But yeah, the know. the the depth of the the shadows and the the brightness of the light. There's this really funny scene where it's you know like a stereotypical interrogation where they they've got to get answers. Right. And they're illuminating these CGI creatures with only like an overhead light source. And the effect is really realistic. Oh, that's great. Yeah, well, that's know, because it, this, new, this new style of animation so enhances the 3D effect. And then when you add the lighting in that models it even more, uh, I can definitely see where that, you know, they would feel that way. And, and you mentioned uh, Chris Nolan and, you know, uh, like so many filmmakers, uh, you know, he started out his career making noir films. Yeah. I mean, that was it. You know, Following was the the first one first I saw, one, yeah. and then Memento and Insomnia and all these things. They're they're very very noir. And I know that he's a huge noir guy. He yeah, he understands yeah. the whole thing. And so you know, he he brought all of that to his vision of Batman. Uh, although I've always maintained that there is no you know spandex in noir yeah <laughs> he's wearing but, hockey pants <laughs> yeah but you can but you can clearly uh you can clearly see the influence sure the the um way back uh in like 2009 um i put together a film festival um uh, and had uh three directors come and i got chris nolan to come and it was because uh i showed two movies i said i want to show your two I didn't say best because I wasn't showing prestige, which I really, really like. Um, but I showed Insomnia and Dark Knight. And I said, I want to show your most appreciated film and your most unappreciated, underappreciated, because I, I liked Insomnia so much. Um, and that flattered him enough that he came because he, he really does kind of, I think, scratch his head that that movie didn't do better. Mm, um, yeah. It's such a good, terrific film. And uh, it, it has one of those elements that you know, we do see in films like DOA, uh, which is like the, uh, you know, the unreliable, it's not so much an unreliable narrator, but it's uh, uh, altered perceptions, I guess. I guess that'd be the best way, because insomnia, I mean, the way that they use uh, Pacino's, you know, fatigue and his, you know, he can can barely see and the glare and stuff, like Nolan does that again and again in his movies. There's fear toxin or there's, um, you know, uh, amnesia. There's always something mm-hmm. that screws with people's perceptions, uh, and that that cut, there's a long tradition of that as well, right? Uh, in noir, with like, oh, abs- absolutely. You know, yeah. I mean, we jokingly, Lee Server was the first person to say this, but uh, you know, in in noir, amnesia hmm. is noir's version of the common cold. I mean, <laughs> every everybody has amnesia in film noir, right? And it, and it is a big thing. And part of that is because so many of the films revolve around questions of identity, hmm. you know, like, who am I? Uh, what am I capable of? Am I the person I thought I was? And hmm. then amnesia takes it to the, the ultimate step where, you know, your brain's been kind of wiped clean and then you can put the pieces back in and are you putting them back in in the proper order or, or yeah. not, you know? Yeah. Uh, so, so, yeah, you do... Right. Yeah, you you do see a lot of that in in noir, you know, yeah, and facial and, like uh, people getting plastic surgery and, and that and that again, not to you know <laughs> belabor this, but to go back to Blade Runner, I mean, it's yeah. such a fascinating thing because the theme it takes the idea of identity to the next level. It it it's not a film about identity; it's about existence. It's like who who created me. Yeah. It's not like, who am I? It's like, who created me? And what does my life have any meaning? Yeah. You know, and uh, that that's why 
no matter how you twist it, you have to consider Blade Runner as a noir because it deals with that essential issue, which kind of lurks at the at the core of a lot of noir. You know, yeah. um, frauds too, right? Like, there's a lot of people that either are frauds or think they're frauds or accused of being frauds. Facades. Uh, right. which fits right. exactly into what you're saying about identity and authenticity and value. And, exactly. and that one, it's like, not just who killed me, but who created me and killed who, me. Who, exactly. <laughs> who created me. And yeah, uh, it's kind of interesting. You'll also find a, a corollary between uh, Blade Runner and when you watch Cutter's Way, okay. you'll see that there's a lot of similarities between Roy Batty and Alex Cutter, the character that John Hurd plays. They're angry. They're really, really angry because things have turned out not the way they expected. And then like and somebody has to pay for it. Right. And that's like a year before. I forgot. Did you say 80 or 81? It's a, like 81. Yeah. It's 81. It's like a year before. That's yeah. that's that's uh, I, I suppose it shows especially how impressive uh, Ridley's movie was. Uh, and it's it just staggers the imagination, though, that the entire origami thing was just sort of found on on the set you know that that uh Edward James almost because it seems so integral to the story I, I've always it's not that I doubt that, that it's true it's just that I just kind of marvel at the fact that that such an unplanned thing could have such a central part of the plot well know? things things <laughs> that's what's great about movie making you know it's yeah. like you 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 find the the symbol that unlocks everything kind of right in the moment you know I think that that's kind of cool. You know, I remember yeah. seeing Blade Runner the night it opened oh, wow. <clears throat> and it totally baffled audiences. Yeah. And it, and it did not get good reviews. Not at, I, all. I, not at all. I mean, everybody was raving about the production design, but the rest of it was a big so what at, at the time yeah. that it was released, which is kind of fascinating because I think, again, that there's an analogy there with a lot of, of film noir. You know, movies that we now consider to be absolute classics, like Out of the Past and, you know, Kiss Me Deadly and stuff like that was a big so what at the time that it was released, you, you know. And so here you had this, what we now recognize is this artistic movement that would have a profound effect on movie making, but it didn't really have a profound effect on the movie business. Oh. You know, it, it yeah. because all all those movies have affected, you know, all these filmmakers. And, and you know, when I'm showing these neo-noir films, it's like, here's, you know, we're going to show Blood Simple. And it's like, yeah. clearly the Coen brothers are huge noir fans. You know, they, they yeah. know the books, they know the movies, all this stuff. And, and, you know, we already mentioned Chris Nolan, but you can go right down the list. You know, David Lynch has seen more than his share of film noir, right? Yeah. And it had a profound effect, but in terms of the business, it was like, are we done yet? Can we stop making these movies? Yeah. We don't, re you know, the, the, the powers that be in Hollywood got tired of it really fast. Yeah. Uh, and I, I just find that kind of fascinating, you know? Yeah. It, it, I, I read that great book, uh, Public Enemies, uh, that Michael Mann turned into the, the, uh, the John Dillinger film. And I, it, what, you're saying it really reminds me of that because the the, the amazing uh, and notorious chapter in history of the bank robbers, um, I mean, that was about, it was like 30 months long. I mean, you <laughs> yeah. know, like yeah. the entire career of Bonnie and Clyde and Babyface Nelson and, and uh, Ma Barker and, you know, all these figures that, I mean, it, it was like from 1931 to 1933, I, I might be off a little bit, but, um, it, it just wasn't meant to last in, in a way. And it's, that kind of reminds me of what you're describing in, in more ways than one, just because of the, the, uh, the, the well, because it's not, it, what's word. fascinating about that, Jeff, is it's not the, it's not the incidents that are so memorable. It's the stories that come out of that, that yeah. then become the legend that are passed down. And that becomes our history. Yeah, you know, so it, it's it's the fact that Bonnie and Clyde inspired so many great stories that were later told sure. that that's how the legend is sustained. You know, yeah. and Louise, and Ridley Scott again. It, it, exactly. <laughs> I mean, Lovers on the Run is like a classic 
thing and it will Bunch never never yeah. go out of style you know gun crazy bonnie and clyde breathless uh you know and and they're still making those films and they and they always will yeah. right um so yeah so that's kind of that's what the movies do you know they they turn this stuff into legend yeah and uh and it, by fictionalizing it but who knows sometimes the fiction may become closer to the truth uh yeah. or or what we want to believe the truth is you know yeah it resonates with us you know you know yeah. uh, untouchables is one of my favorite movies I, I i just find it so satisfying such a satisfying film and the performances are so great it's Love a great, great David Mamet screenplay. Great, great screenplay. screenplay. Great clothes, you know, like this, uh, the fashion on it. Everything is beautiful. And Costner, there's Costner. He's he's perfect in that movie, That's as right. is Sean, Sean Connery Conner. and every everybody else. You know, it's, yeah. it's pitch perfect. But it became history to me. And then, so I was really shocked recently. And it's just it's a, a tiny thing, but you know, uh, Ed, Elliot Ness was born in Chicago. He was raised in Chicago. He went to college in Chicago. And it, but I will always think of him as the guy that just got to town and doesn't know what the hell is going on in Chicago. Like, <laughs> like, wow. I mean, talk about misunderstood. Uh, well, I think that's funny. where I think that's where Mamet understood the mythology of what he was doing. Like, it was really yeah. important to have him be the sheriff who just came into town. Yeah. Right. Like in yeah. an old western, because that's that's what Mamet was doing. He was yeah. taking the gangster saga and and grafting a western framework on it. Yeah. Like the sheriff and his, you know, his overmatched guys, you know, his deputies were going to take on the biggest, you know, robber baron thief crook in the world. And that's like right. that, that that's the mythology that America loves so much. And yeah. boy, did he, he just nailed it. Yeah. And then we get to discover everything through his eyes. So when he makes a mistake, we've already made the assumption with him when he, when he, uh, you know, overlooks something we've overlooked it too. Like, so uh, he gets to pull us into that dark world um, right. in a much more kind of user-friendly way for the audience. Uh, but damn, I thought he was, I never thought he was from Chicago. It's just, I don't know why that bothers me so much. <laughs> One last thing, boy, I, just, I could talk to you for days. Um, Jimmy Stewart seems to me, uh, if there was a, uh, an actor that people saw change over time and, and, and change in really interesting ways. Like you were saying earlier in this conversation about Costner and very rightly so. Um, Jimmy Stewart and his experience at war, like Jimmy Stewart was a true war hero. I mean, mm -hmm. the, you know, he's, he wasn't an actor who was in the war. He was a war hero. Like people look up the records and what he did. It's really extraordinary. And, and the way that he came back from that and how that affected him and how we saw that in his face and his performances and and it would kind of echo in movies like vertigo and some more more classics i'm just wondering if if you perceive that too because i always try to look at jimmy stewart after the war uh and just think about how he might be different than the jimmy stewart that you know was famous before the war well it, it really shows up in those westerns he made with anthony mann i mean that's where you really started to see a different jimmy stewart when he makes the naked spur and winchester 73 and bend of the river and man from laramie and all that stuff uh that was a bitter hard man yeah. it, that he was playing in those movies and and those are the films where i think you really see his range as an actor but you know, I still think his greatest performance is in "It's a Wonderful Life," yeah, which he, you know, which isn't. I don't love that movie the way some people love that movie. I see something different in it. But oh. his performance carries that whole movie. He Just is the so bridge. he is <laughs> so uncanny in that film that he, he that guy can sell anything on screen. I mean, you give yeah. him the worst material, and he will turn it into something that that touches. The audience in in some, you know, deep way. He he is tremendous. It is funny. Like people always ask, are there any actors today that do what the older actors did? And, you know, it, it's funny that when you see guys like the, the main thing that strikes me about how hard it is to make that comparison is to realize that these actors we're talking about the Jimmy Stewarts, the the Gary Coopers. The Humphrey, Bo I mean, Humphrey Bogart was a trained actor, even though he doesn't look like it. He seems right. so natural on screen that you don't think 
this guy was in theater and this guy said, you know, or somebody yeah. like John Garfield, who just seems like a kid pulled in off the street, but he actually, you know, was in theater and studied. But a lot of these people like Dana Andrews and Robert Mitchum, yeah. they, 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 there was nothing for them to draw on. They yeah. were creating this yeah. on their own, you know, uh, and somebody like, you know, I think that Bogart and Mitchum are the two key actors in noir because, yeah. you know, everybody at the time, like Catherine Hepburn famously told Mitchum, you know, I don't like working with people like you. You're unprofessional. You don't know what you're doing. And if you weren't good looking, good looking, you wouldn't have a career. And oh. Mitchum always loved to imitate her, you know, <laughs> saying this to him. But he totally got it. You know, like yeah. all I have to do is just be who I am in front of the camera, and remember the lines, and and it's going to be great. And that guy has a legacy on film that's like second oh, to none now. Yeah. You know. And you always had the feeling that the most interesting things that happened to Robert Mitchum happened after someone said cut. Like this is a guy that walks off the movie set and you get the feeling that's what I want to see is what is not on camera because oh, yeah. that guy's life. Uh, that's, that well, we're showing part of this TCM series. We're showing the friends of Eddie Coyle uh -huh. and that's kind of legendary because you know, he said, I'll do the movie, but I only want to work for three weeks. I don't, I don't, I can't do more than three weeks. So originally he was going to take a secondary role because they thought, well, we only got him for three weeks. Right. So he was going to play the part that Peter Boyle plays in the movie oh. as kind of the deceitful, duplicitous bartender. And then he said, ah, what the hell, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll play Eddie, you know, and, but every day, uh, Peter Yates, the director, even if Mitchum blew lines and went off book, you know, and he, it, he'd printed because he said it was so real. Mitchum would just say stuff. And if he, you know, he would never say, Oh, I blew the line. He would just say whatever he felt like saying instead, because he understood the character. And so that way they got him for just those three weeks. They didn't do a lot of retakes, but every night he would go out drinking in the bars with the actual crooks. Right. right. The, the Winter Hill gang and all those guys. And, the you know, the stories are legend that he like, did he hang out with Whitey Bulger and all those guys? But, you know, that that was him. It's like I'm just playing around and, and getting paid. But then he'd go out and live it afterwards. Yeah. You know, talk about method. <laughs> yeah, yeah, really, really it's a different kind. Well, that's fantastic. Well, Eddie, I can't tell you how uh, much of a treat it is to talk to you and and uh, you know, you've done great service to cinema uh, and fans by uh, by your emphasis and your curation, and and uh, it's always really well done. So we really appreciate your time today. Oh, thank you, Jeff. I, I really appreciate it. It was great fun talking to you, and uh, we'll do it again. I hope that sounds great. All right. Well, you take care. And uh, one more time, you want to tell us the dates? So, of course, I want to plug my book that's coming out: Dark City: The Lost World of Film Noir, the revised and expanded version, which will be out at some point in July. Uh, you know, the COVID has, has pushed everything back a little bit. So uh, the publisher's having a little trouble getting the book into the country, oh, no. <laughs> but, but it, will, it will be here. Uh, we've been promised uh, this month and I'm, I, I have a copy here uh, that I'm, I couldn't be more excited about it. It really oh, turned out fantastic. spectacularly well. Oh, you know what? That's fantastic. Well, you know what? When it comes out, we can always, if you'd like to come back on, we'd love to have you. Sure, to, sure, to absolutely. To kind of circle that date for people. And uh, uh, it sounds like it's being extradited the way you, you described it. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you know, they, they've shipped advanced copies in via plane. But, you know, books are the last thing you want to ship on an airplane because they're so heavy. It's like, put them on the ship. But then it's uh, everybody's having problems with the ports uh, because they're undermanned and all this, all the effects of, uh, of COVID yeah. have, have really hurt operations at all the ports. So it's a, everything's been backed up a little bit. Wow. Sort of fascinating. The repercussions you don't even necessarily think of. Uh, oh, yeah. But uh, well, it's still um, from where I'm sitting, it looks great. And I can't wait to see it. Uh, and uh, congratulations on that. That's a, such a nice looking book it's like a really lovely book it is it's a heavy one too well we will see you in the movies as they say all right thanks a million jeff all right take care
Okay. Hi, thanks for tuning into Mindspace. That was Jeff Boucher in conversation with Eddie Mueller, talking about the recent reissue of Eddie's guide to film noir, Dark City. Uh, Eddie runs Noir Alley on TCM. So if you're ever in the need for a hit of hard-boiled, dark, gritty Americana, just tune in there and you'll see his historical perspective on those films, which we've definitely enjoyed. Yeah, and it's uh, it, uh, it's a genre and, a, and an aesthetic that just uh, just continues to echo so well. You know, it seems to have so many different permutations. Uh, I never get tired of it, so it's it's uh, nice to see that other people are responding to it as well. Mm -hmm, definitely, um, I know we talked a little bit about some of the more overt influences of film noir on science fiction and genre work culminating probably most famously in Blade Runner, things like Sin City. I think you could also count the fiction of Philip K. Dick as very hard-boiled noir. But what genre films, if you look at the definition of noir, closely mirror noir, but which you would never expect. So when you take one look at Blade Runner, like you can tell that this is noir, but what are some films that borrow some of the elements like cynical, world-weary voiceovers, detectives, suspense, murder, stark lighting, moody, <laughs> moody underground locations, you know, CD plot lines and femme fatales. What kind of sci-fi movies that use those elements, but that you would never think were noir? Uh, do you have a do you have a thought? Yeah, uh, my my pet pseudo noir or undercover noir is the first half of Fellowship of the Ring. <laughs> okay. I think that even though the characters are hobbits, I think some of the music, some of the the setups, the endless suspense, the disappearances, the race against time, and the the characters who are suddenly plunged into a noir-esque world especially when you get to places like Brie and like the Prancing Pony that's like very noir when you get to the pub with all the the characters kind of staring at you um in the Strider's introduction he's literally smoking a pipe in the shadows and like his voice comes out of nowhere that's I think that's counts as fantasy noir but <laughs> yeah it's that might be a heretical opinion but <laughs> no no I think it's got uh I think you have uh, there's certainly some elements there that make sense that uh, that conjure up some of the familiar menace and textures of uh, noir. So I can I can see what you're what you're uh, saying there. Um, I'm trying to think if I can come up with something similar, but uh, you know maybe uh, maybe the Wizard of Oz, maybe the uh, uh, the, the witch is a femme fatale, and I just haven't put it all together. Uh, mm -hmm. She looks good in black. Um, so uh, there's a lot of double crosses, so maybe something like that. But uh, I always thought that uh, it was great that uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit was, uh, was mm -hmm. a such a sunny version of the noir. Uh, I always thought that it was so nice that, uh, um, that uh, they were able to accomplish uh, such an interesting tonal mix, you know. Um, and, uh, you know, Rango uh, is a great noir. Oh, okay, yeah. I mean, it's basically Chinatown uh, in the Old West. I mean, it's even got, you know, a character that looks like John Houston, who's got a very similar sort of menacing uh, water plot to undermine uh, everybody in his, his town. And uh, there, there's a lot of similarities there. Um, so I, th I think it's interesting when, when noirs go back in time, uh, like with a Western uh, noir like that, and then there's some some obscure sci-fi films like uh, Outland, there, uh, which not a lot of people probably remember, but it's a Sean Connery film. It was a it's a pretty tough uh, kind of outer space uh, western. Uh, it doesn't have a western aesthetic, other than it's uh, sort of one man against the uh, uh, overwhelming number, and uh, people are standing by. Will they? They step up or will he be the only one it's kind of got a high noon kind of feel to it and it's got a very sort of noir aesthetic mm -hmm. and i think that one's kind of dropped off the radar a little bit but it's early 80s and uh, it's not a perfect film but it's got 
some interesting things in it, especially especially seeing uh, Sean Connery in that era. Um, uh, so that one's kind of interesting. I, I'm wondering if there's a uh, like a an ancient noir, like a ancient Greek noir or something. Hmm. Like, you know, if uh, if any of the uh, if any of the movies like Immortals or if uh, or um, maybe some of the feudal Japanese films, there, there's probably a noir in there that uh, we could probably detect if we if we uh, if we spend some time on it yeah I was gonna say that the the Oresteia by Aeschylus is starts off very much like a noir even though it was written you know four thousand years ago if that no two and a half thousand years ago not well, sure after, after two it doesn't really matter <laughs> well yeah it starts I mean even though they would have been viewing it in you know, the afternoon in the forum in a very public place. It's such pain is taken in describing the shadows and shadowy interiors and characters with ulterior motives at the beginning of that. Uh, it's it's really great. <laughs> like you can tell from the first line that somebody's gonna get murdered. Uh, but you know, and and if you're familiar with the mythology, you know who's going to get murdered, but it's still just the atmosphere of dread and cynicism and uh, the corruption that's gone to the heart of society is really great. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking also Macbeth and mm. the production of Macbeth is probably leans toward noir and um, you know, uh, The Grifters is a great movie, uh, Stephen Frears, uh, Terrific noir revival in the '80s with um, with uh, John Cusack and with um, just a it's got a terrific cast and it's uh, it's about a, a stick up in at a, a horse track ostensibly and gambling stuff and mm -hmm. uh, it's got a lot of Shakespearean overtones and and uh, it makes me think also like Sons of Anarchy that feels like uh, mm -hmm. you know a Shakespearean uh, mix between uh, Shakespeare and Noir with bikers, you know. Yeah. Um, all the mashups are kind of fun to to kind of delve into. Yeah, I think in addition to that, but the first like third of Attack of the Clones <laughs> is a Noir. Wow. And I know that so much of that movie in the first third, I mean, in, in all of it, but is is ridiculed, is not like making any sense. Like, why did George Lucas have Obi-Wan Kenobi meet a guy at a space diner? And like, it doesn't make any sense as a Star Wars movie, but it makes sense as a noir. I'm going to have to, you know, I, 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 I'm going to have to uh, think about that. Uh, I haven't seen that film since it came out, and I'm not even sure oh. I remember the first Oh dear, yeah. Well, it starts off with an attempted assassination and it's very like, the scene is very dark, you know, this, the silver ship glides in and then stuff blows up. And then, then, then the Jedi have to figure out, okay, who would try to assassinate Padme Amidala? Okay. And then there's, you know, Anakin has to go and then there's the other assassination attempt in her room where it's like the assassin, like you see the, the, and, and the, the lighting is so noir because it's got like paneled shades. So you see just stripes of city light coming. And then like the, the evil worm comes through the door and slowly slithers across the floor and they have to stop it. And then they got to chase the assassin through the city. And then they end up in the nightclub with the death sticks guy. Um, and then, oh, and then yeah. as the assassin is killed, I think she says something like, <laughs> and like that's their clue and then they have to go off and obi-wan has to talk to his friend in the space diner it's a noir <laughs> yeah they're in search of the maltese falcons they're the millennium falcon yeah really that's interesting yeah well that's uh now, i'm that's not saying it's well done i'm saying that i think that if you approach it from that's what the creators maybe were aiming for that it makes a lot more sense than, than as a totally off the walls bonkers canon format Star Wars movie. Well, I think that uh, there's definitely there's definitely something there. I think uh, that's a that's a good good analysis. I think it, I'm going to rewatch it with that in mind. I think mm -hmm. so. Well, that sounds with good. A, with a stiff noir drink, probably. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the voiceover. Yeah. It all started when I decided to rewatch Attack of the Clones. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, well, I don't know if Eddie Mueller will go for it, but uh, I think uh, I'll try to read his book and watch the movie together and see how it goes. Well, I think that's uh, good for this week. And then uh, uh, check out Eddie's book. It's great to see it's doing so uh, so well. It's, it's a big success for him right out of the gates with the reissue. And um, and then we'll uh, get that Phantom Menace screening going here pretty quick. Mm -hmm.